I'm really glad to be here, if for no other reason, because we are far north. My idea of hell is to be roasted on a Mediterranean beach. <laughs> uh, uh, further to the north that we are, all the better. Uh, so, again, proud to be here, and let's go directly to the topic. I hope you will not be too disappointed, because... My point of pride is always to give a title and then do something totally different, you know, like... <laughs> here today I will betray myself. I will really talk about what the topic says. It's part of an ongoing project because next year, 2020, will be a, a quarter of a millennium, 250 years of the birth of Hegel, the German idealist. So this is from the first draft of my book on the provisional title is Hegel in a Wired Brain. What does this prospect of wired brain mean? So not to lose time, let me begin. I will deal here with the prospect of so-called post-humanity opened up by a direct link between our brain and a digital machine. What? is popularly called by some people like Elon Musk, Neuralink. My premise is that one should resist the temptation to proclaim the prospect of a wired brain an illusion, something that we are still far from and that cannot really be actualized. I think that in spite of all simplifications and exaggerations in the public media, something is going on in this domain, and I will limit myself to questioning the philosophical implications and consequences of this prospect. Important as the rise of the so-called surveillance capitalism is, it is, I think, not yet the true game changer. I see a much greater potential for new forms of domination in the prospect of direct brain-machine interface. It is clear that all kinds of secret agencies are already working intensely on it. What we learn is just the public face of it. So, the idea of a direct communicational pathway is usually presented as implying two steps. First, that a link between an enhanced or wired brain and an external device, and then a direct link between brains themselves. So first, our brain is connected to digital machines. So what this practically mean, and it may sound utopian, but my friends who work on this are telling me that we are almost already there, namely this idea that your brain is somehow connected with the computer, and the computer can already discern some basic, at least basic, raw, but nonetheless, data of what you are thinking about. For example, I was told that when Stephen Hawking was dying in the last month of his life, he was already considering even practicing this type of communication in the sense of so I was told he no longer was using his proverbial one finger that he was able to move a little bit. For moving his wheelchair, 
he, it was enough for him to just think forwards and the computer to which his brain was wired was able to discern this sign and things happened in a reality. Then the next step is <coughs> that, uh, that uh, the digital machine is just a mediator so that I can, that's the dream, so that I can, I can share directly my experiences with others. I think about something others can directly participate in my uh, experience. Here, a quote from Elon Musk, who is, of course, not a theorist, but a popularizer. Say you are on a beautiful hike and you want to show your husband the view. No problem, just think out to him to request a brain connection. When he accepts, connect your retina feed to his visual cortex. Now his vision is filled with exactly what your eyes see as if he's there. End of quote. And of course, what is more logical than to extend this idea onto the domain of sexuality? Again, a quote from Elon Musk. You could save a great sex experience in the cloud to enjoy again later on, and if you are not too private a person, you could send it over to a friend to experience it, and so on and so on. What's the problem I see here? A whole series of problems, or just open questions. First, uh, uh, it's the implication, not only of a simplifier like Elon Musk, but of many other, let's call them theorists of whatever you call it, wired brain or singularity, is this new form of collective uh, spiritual experience, uh, that somehow our brains, sorry, our thoughts will be directly socialized without the mediation of language. The, and here, as a philosopher, I already explode, because the presupposition is that somehow our thoughts exist prior to language. Because First, this is not true even at an empirical level. Maybe we have some sense perceptions which are non-linguistic, even that I doubt. But uh, the moment you think in conceptual terms, you think in words. Words are never just an obstacle. This pseudo-platonic perspective that words are just a material obstacle, that ideally we should target thoughts directly. is simply false, and this is a nice example, I will talk a lot about this uh, tonight, of this basic Hegelian insight. If all Hegelian dialectics can be condensed, resumed in something, it is precisely this idea that be careful when something appears to you as an obstacle to a perfection. Quite often, this what appears as an obstacle is, uh, is really what gives rise to the perception, to the perfection. Let me improvise, even if I'm eating my own time and I wait for you, Matthew, as my superego to interrupt me, then I had a nice uh, personal experience 
at this level. Did you see the movie, which is a bad movie based on Doctor's novel, I think, uh, Billy Bathgate? When I saw the movie with Dustin Hoffman and, I don't know, Nicole Kidman, I think, and so on, uh, uh, my impression was this is a bad movie, but you can still feel that there is a much better failed novel behind it. <laughs> like, you know, you can somehow I felt the greatness of the novel behind it. Then I did something which costed me my friendship with Doctorov. Because through some lady who was his secretary, uh, I know that he learned my experience and didn't want to have any contact with me. Because what I then did is the obvious thing. Okay, let's then read the novel directly. Sorry, but my result, maybe I'm wrong, was that it's even worse than the movie. <laughs> so you see the paradox. You have two failures. Bad novel made into a bad movie. But in between, retroactively, this uh, mirage of, per of perfection arises. It exists nowhere. You don't get this perfect story. But you need it in the space between the two failures. I have another experience of this, which is my favorite, but I apologize in advance if it will appear a little bit sexist. Well, my only excuse is that it is sexist. <laughs> uh, uh, I, long ago, at some, I will not say there, it would be too, too indiscreet, uh, uh, a lady, well, elder lady, very nice one, was flirt flirting with me quite openly, and she told me that her last lover, who saw her naked, told her that her body is perfect just for two, three pounds too much, too heavy. You know what was my instant reaction? Don't try to lose the two, three pounds. Because this mirage of a perfect body was emerged precisely, you know, as the reaction to this obstacle. If only you lose two, three pounds, you would be perfect. Then you lose two, three pounds, you don't get perfection, you get an ordinary body. And uh, this is what uh, dialectics teaches us. See the positive generating aspect of imperfection. See how, and even to reach the top of the tops, even Marx himself was here too narrow, I think. He saw clearly how capitalism thrives, but on this imperfection, uh, exploitation, surplus profit, and so on and so on. So his dream was to get rid of this surplus, which for Marx more and more serves as an obstacle. But I think Marx's dream was in some sense still capitalism without capitalism. He thought if we get rid of the obstacle, surplus value, capital exploitation, we will get pure expansion. No, we will not. I don't know what. We will get, but not that. We need the obstacle. That's my first point. My next question. Uh, so again, uh, 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 don't language, of course, it's a clumsy mediator. Like just think about when you love somebody. You say, I love you. 
It's a bland statement that uh, millions of people probably say daily, but it echoes, it can echo an incredible wealth of your experience, but don't never think that you can get rid of these uh, words and just get directly at the experience. Next uh, question is about uh, indivi individuality. If we, uh, I think that uh, our uh, experience with the symbolic order demonstrates again how uh, progress meant till now more alienation. Sorry, uh, thank you very much. Al alienation in the sense that new layers get in between. We never communicate directly. First, it's language. Then it's uh, uh, writing. Then it's internet, whatever, whatever. And what happens if, that's the prospect of Neuralink, if these intermediate layers disappear and if we get direct communications? Will we... You know what is lost? Now, I will. The, the dimension I am aiming at is this one. There is a disgusting movie. I hate it. But it has one classical scene. Uh, did you see? I'm so ashamed to mention it here. Uh, four weddings at the, and the funeral. Uh, you remember when the guy. I don't know, he's a well known actor. It's just his name slipped out. Sorry? Yeah, when he declares his love to Andy McDowell, he plays this typical English game of getting interrupted, clumsiness all the time, and so on. But of course, the obvious vulgar melodramatic lesson is that it is only through this clumsiness and so on that you can somehow transmit authentic love. If you can... Say a perfect love declaration, something has to be wrong with your uh, uh, love, uh, with your love. It's the same even if we go at the opposite dramatic end. Here, of course, I totally disagree with those who, when a woman denounces to the police that she was raped, and then you know, one of the nasty tricks of the police, at least till now, is to look for contradictions in her report and claim, oh, but you are not consistent, you said this five minutes before, blah, blah. Well, I think, and already this is too anti-feminist, but nonetheless, I think I'm making a correct point that precisely I wouldn't trust a woman who would have been able to give a, a perfect objective report and so on. The very failures in her report, the very inconsistencies, confusions, can signal can signal uh, authenticity. You know, this is a beautiful paradox, Lacan. Jacques Lacan mentioned it somewhere that our subjective expression is always a failed one, in the sense that you want to say something, you fail in it, and only through this failure you do it. That's progress. Progress is like, if you allow me a uh, very vulgar theory of French cuisine. As an excuse not to offend French people, I will say that a French guy told this to me, that the mystery of French cuisine are failures elevated into triumphs. 
French farmers were making cheese. They were lazy, the cheese got rotten and so on. And they said, oh my God, let's sell this as something special. And you get the French cheese. Or they were making wine and something went wrong. The wine fermented too much. And they said, okay, let's call it champagne. Let's, you know, all the great moments of French food are this. Failure turned into, failure turned into a, a triumph. So, again, what happens if you can do it directly, successfully, if this danger of failure uh, disappears? Uh, here we can see, of course, he's not a philosopher, the big fiasco of Elon Musk. When he is asked this question, his answer is, uh, I quote, people won't be able to read your thoughts. You would have to will it. If you don't will it, it doesn't happen. Just like if you don't will your mouth to talk, it doesn't talk. I find this statement totally problematic. Because the, all the, the idea of Neuralink is that precisely the machine doesn't interact with your psyche directly, but with the neuronal or whatever material existence of your psychic life. So, for me, the interesting question, if anything, is exactly the opposite one. It's rather, the point is not uh, if my thoughts are shared in some common space of the machine, are they still my own thoughts? That would even be a good result. I see the opposite danger, that your thoughts are shared, but you are not even aware of it. That you are, so the danger is not just I will lose my individuality. The danger is that you will still think that you are, that you are a, a free uh, individual. And this, uh, this is already half concerned, half, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, confirmed with research, my friends who are deeply involved, I have strange friends, I admit it, into this, told me that, uh, you know, it's an old story of mine, they already can do it for decades with rats. I have a video, which is a pretty terrifying video, a friend of mine who works in a lab doing this uh, cognitive research, has told me, where they already deciphered very elementary orders that neuronal path of how a red gives orders to its, uh, to its legs to move and so on, to walk what direction. And then the result is pretty terrifying when they wired in a very elementary way still, this red's brain. You have a box, you press the button, and to be very brutal, the red turns into a remote-controlled car. You see a red running around in a box, you press the button and you can direct the movements. Now comes the mysterious part my friends didn't want to talk about. But they told me their question was immediately, how would it have been with men? And if you do it on humans, and it's pretty elementary, I'm talking just about these basic orders, move forward, left, and so on. Uh, how will a human being controlled in this way how will it experience this predicament? Will it be that something like, oh my God, now I'm no longer my own master, 
a foreign power is directing my movements. All the indications, I was told, go in the opposite direction. You don't even know that you are controlled. You think that you are still freely, like, I would advise you to do this. I walk here around, you press your button, you direct me, and I still think that I'm, I'm uh, freely, uh, that I'm uh, freely walking uh, around. So I think that at this level, uh, the prospects of breathtaking might control opens, uh, uh, opens up. We cannot even imagine what is going on, what is already going on. Next point, uh, a psychoanalytic one. It's easy for Elon Musk to evoke this sharing sexual experiences and so on and so on. And I ask a very naive question, but what remains then of our sexuality? My premise is here openly a psychoanalytic one. Be very, uh, be very careful here. Psychoanalysis does not conceive sexuality as a natural instinctual base, simply. We have certain biological drives and so on, and then with the development of our culture, we just civilized these drives. Like, instead of, in the male chauvinist universe, instead of raping a woman, I write poems to her, invite her out, whatever, and so on and so on. No, it's not, uh, it's not like this. The basic premise of Freud is that sexuality, our human sexuality, is our most elementary metaphysical experience. That's why Freud privileges sexuality. Because for him, sexual passion is precisely where we are no longer animals. With animals, you have instinctual life, rhythm of mating, and so on and so on. With humans, you have two opposite distortions. On the one hand, sexuality can become a deadly passion, something which obsesses you. I'm talking about passionate love, sexual love, and disturbs your daily rhythm. And I agree with some writers who wrote about it, and I deeply agree with them, also from personal experience, who say love is the greatest catastrophe you can imagine in this sense. Imagine you have a normal life, you know, like uh, maybe one night stand here and there, uh, going out in the evening with friends, drinking beer, blah, blah. And then you fall passionately in love. It's a nightmare. All your daily rhythm is disturbed. Everything focuses on that. Your, your peace is lost and so on and so on. At the same time, and it's the other side of the same story, our sex life is always marked by an, it's basically perverted in the sense of marked by a series of detours and impossibilities. For example, uh, only with humans you can have this logic that it attracts you only if it is prohibited. This fundamental role of prohibition that if you can get directly your partner, it's simple animal mating. If you have to go through, pass through the obstacles, 
the obstacles eroticize it. For example, you have this medieval practice of, uh, of courtly love, where the sexual fulfillment, full act, is indefinitely postponed. You never do it. You never go to the end. And this very obstacle eroticizes the situation even more, is, is a source of pleasure. As Freud puts it somewhere in a very Hegelian moment, the trick of human psyche is that a prohibition of enjoyment, something is prohibited to you by the social order, you are not allowed to do it, always turns into the prohibition of enjoyment always turns into enjoying the prohibition itself. You know, that's the fundamental paradox of human sexuality. It's not that our full enjoyment is at the same time impossible. You never get it, the incestuous object. But also, you cannot ever avoid it, get lost of it. Because the very, this is, the very ways you avoid it get eroticized. That's the basic mechanism, for example, of, and believe me, I know it because I'm one of them, of obsessional neurotics. Something is prohibited, and to protect you from this desire, you get involved in rituals, compulsive rituals, and they get eroticized themselves. So I'm just asking, what happens with all this when you can get your pleasure directly? Since, again, human eroticism is the, is, resides in the detour itself. And that's often the problem, is, uh, uh, that uh, what many people are afraid of is precisely to get lost in the detour. My English friend, a Lacanian analyst, Darian Leader, told me a wonderful example from his practice. I'm sorry if you already know it, I used it in one of my books, but it's a perfect example, where uh, one of his patients told him of a strange slip of tongue that he made. He invited a lady, I'm sorry, it's with a male chauvinist twist, he invited a lady to a dinner in a nice hotel. His idea was a very vulgar one. First nice dinner, then we go up to the room. And he made a strange slip of tongue. Entering the restaurant, instead of saying a table for two, please, he said a bed for two, please. Now, as a true Lacanian, Darian leader gave a wonderful reading of this. It's not that he was vulgar and he didn't really care about uh, dinner, he wanted to go, his desire was directly <coughs> go to bed with her sex. His reading is exactly the opposite one. This guy was afraid that he will enjoy the detour so much that he will say, okay, we had nice dinner, I'm tired, let's go home or whatever. It, the, the role of this sleep was to remind himself, keep the energy for later. Don't enjoy too much this detour, because that's what perverts do. Okay, <laughs> enough of this. My, uh, my basic... Uh, Conclu concluding point here is that, <coughs> of course, as such as the prospect of this direct communication between uh, brains, uh, singularity or whatever we call it, uh, 
has a certain implicit, let's call it, metaphysical dimension. The threat is uh, obvious. Uh, partisans of singularity, like Ray Kurzweil, often simplify things incredibly. When I read Ray Kurzweil's books, I was struck by how he praises singularity, it's wonderful, moving in the same spiritual space with others, but somehow he presupposes that we still will be the same individuals who are doing it. He doesn't even locate the danger. My point is this one. When you have this short circuit between your thinking and reality, think about the example that I gave you of, of uh, Stephen Hawking. You do something and, sorry, you think it and thinking immediately has consequences in real life. Like, they already are experimenting, I was told, some uh, factories who are doing uh, coffee machines that you look at it, you think coffee machine starts to work and so on. This sounds nice, but at the same time, think about what you lose here. You lose this distance, gap between yourself and reality, a gap which is the very basis of our thinking individuality. Our most elementary sense of freedom is the freedom of thought, in the sense of, okay, I'm in social life uh, controlled by others, but I am at least formally free in my thinking. I can play, experiment there, do mental experiments, and so on and so on. Something tremendous happens when this distance is lost. The partisans of singularity try to give a positive spin to it. They claim that uh, that what will happen with our immersion into this collective shared space of collective shared experience is nothing else, I go very quickly here, not to talk to nothing less than the redemption from the fall in religious sense. Fall is fall into finitude, mortality, and so on. We will, in a way, become almost divine, share in, uh, participating in an immortal uh, collective spiritual experience. Uh, uh, and they even talk about self-actualization of God in this process, in the sense that only in singularity, spirit and matter will be fully reconciled. Because when we will, when our individual thinking will be immersed into singularity and in this sense become part of objective reality, we lose distance between our isolated subjectivity and objective reality. And in this sense, they claim that uh, not only we will become godlike, but in some sense, God itself will actualize, actualize itself, itself will become fully God, only, fully God only in this way. Uh, what we get here is something pretty interesting, I claim. 
It's, you know, Hegel, the great German idealist, claimed we are at the end of history. With French Revolution and free bourgeois society, we reached the highest point of imaginable of human development, free political order. But then a series of theorists claimed Hegel uh, came too early. He was not yet there. For example, some Marxists, so-called Hegelian Marxists, like the young George Lukacs in his classic History and Class Consciousness, said, no, Hegel's reconciliation was wrong. It's only with proletarian revolution that subject and object, individual and collective, will be truly reconciled. Then we get Fukuyama, for whom Hegel just was a little bit, again, too quick. It's not with Hegel's rational constitutional monarchy, it's only with uh, modern liberal democratic capitalism that we reach the end point. And here, with the prospect of singularity, we have, again, the last version of this Hegel came too early. What Hegel and German idealists were aiming at, it, it will happen only now. Now, it's easy to make fun of this, but it's more of this, uh, 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 this uh, 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 speculative theologist of singularity. But I think that uh, uh, there is a problem here. Of course, in some sense, if, and I'm not going into the technological stuff, it is feasible, is it feasible or not? But I'm just saying generally, if we imagine entering singularity, but of course, in some sense, we overcome the fall. But not in the way that, precisely not in the way that German idealists uh, imagine it. For Hegel, and you should read, these are maybe one of the most provocative pages in Hegel. For Hegel, it's not that we fall and then maybe at the end through divine grace or whatever, we are redeemed. For Hegel, fall and redemption are the same thing. Fall means finitude, eating from the tree of knowledge and so on and so on. And redemption resides just in you Seeing is the same joke that I used before when I said uh, how you need the positive role of obstacle that, and Hegel says this clearly, that fall itself is at the same time opens up the space for goodness and freedom. Through the fall, you discover the dimension from which you fell, as it were. Hegel puts it in his lectures on the philosophy of religion, part of Christianity. He says openly that thinking as such, in some sense, is evil. Thinking is not just, as Christians like to say, the freedom to choose good and evil. No, thinking is formally evil. Because insofar as evil is alienation, opposition, I'm here, reality is there, I isolate myself from the reality, thinking as such is evil, and only against this basic experience of evil, the good emerges. You know, there is no good prior to evil. Hegel says it clearly. For him, paradise is not good. Paradise is animal life. Hegel says it openly. 
through the fall, that's again the same dialectical paradox that I'm obsessed with, through the fall, the dimension from which you fell emerges. The dimension of uh, evil and so on, so the dimension of goodness and so on. So again, the, uh, that's why I don't have time, you're already preparing your knife probably, to go into it, but I think Hegel's reading of Christianity is here extremely interesting because if you go to the end in this dimension of, uh, of uh, thinking as such is evil, it's a wonderful, a little bit theosophic speculation about God, which I think, because I define myself as an atheist Christian, <laughs> which uh, hits the mark of what is really new in Christianity. I simplify it to the utmost. In other, most of the other religions, when you fall from God, God is there, alienated, I feel abandoned by God, you then are looking for ways through I don't know, discipline, spiritual practices, good works to come regain the proximity to God. Oh my God, if you are minimally Christian, you must know that in Christianity something totally different happened. Uh, the solution is not I will come back close to God. The solution through the death of Christ and so on is that you discover that the gap that separates you from God is a self-division of God himself. That's for Hegel also and for all intelligent Christians, the key moment of Christianity. When God, you know that famous statement, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, Father, why have you abandoned me? As Gilbert Keith Chesterton, my favorite Catholic theologist, wrote, there on the cross, God himself becomes atheist for a brief moment. God doesn't believe in himself. So that's the Hegelian reversal. And uh, uh, this is Hegel's reconciliation. Precisely when I feel abandoned by God, it's self-abandonment of God by itself. I am in God in that way. Uh, so again, this means uh, that Reconciliation doesn't mean abandoning the fall finitude and so on. Reconciliation means, for Hegel, that you just realize how your finitude, mortality, fall from God, from transcendence, from higher spiritual realm, is a positive condition of this spiritual realm itself. And Hegel is quite uh, radical here. In one of his uh, passages where he speaks about education, Hegel provides a wonderful example that I love, about how uh, the example that in my youth, stupid libertarian leftists were using as a proof of the oppressive character of our education. How, Hegel knew this, how small children, when they are drawing, or making uh, uh, paintings, whatever, they like to do it with colors. But when you get a little bit older, you prefer just gray pencils. And again, when I was young, this was mentioned by progressive uh, uh, theorists of education as how oppressive our society it is. Young children are still allowed to express their creativity. Then we are 
uh, we are normalized in a straight jacket of just one color. But Hegel says, no, this reduction to a colorless world is what gives wealth to it. Because in this way, a space of, let's call it, virtual depth, which you cannot render directly emergence. That's why I agree, for example, with those cinema theorists who deplored, they were not just simply reactionaries, who were afraid of color cinema, colors and sound. Talking five minutes. I fight. I'm radically opposed to the linear metaphysical notion of time. So, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, I will try to square. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, again, you know, when you get too much of it directly, you lose the spiritual content. Uh, now, I am approaching slowly the <laughs> conclusion. Now, uh, uh, this brings me now to the crucial topic, just concluding line of thought. The Freudian unconscious. My, because my final point will be, there is a hope for us, because I'm not a technological reactionary. I'm not saying, ooh, uh, 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 singularity will be a catastrophe, we will lose our freedom, and so on, and so on. And maybe, this is not a rhetorical question, some of you can even, maybe you know more than me, because all my friends who are dealing with all this, I'm asking them with this problems of neural inquiring the brain and so on. I'm asking them one simple question. For Jacques Lacan, unconscious is not some spiritual substance, deep instinct. It's a very fragile virtual entity. It is what some intelligent contemporary evolutionary biologist like my favorite, <coughs> sorry, Terence Deacon, call absentials, you know. What do I mean by this? I'm sorry, I will now repeat a joke which probably most of you know. I always quote it from uh, Ernst Lubitsch's movie, Ninochka, where, you know, a guy enters a restaurant, a cafeteria, and asks the waiter, can I get a coffee but without cream, please? And you know what's the mega-classic, very Hegelian answer of the waiter? Sorry, sir, we don't have cream, we only have milk, so I cannot give you a coffee without cream. I can all, all, only give you coffee without milk. <laughs> this is what Hegel means by determinate negation. Although it's the same coffee, straight coffee, plain coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream are the same coffee materially. But let's call it symbolically in the spiritual space, they are not the same. And there are wonderful speculations to be done here done by my good friend, uh, the uh, French uh, theorist of catastrophes, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, who works also, apart from Paris, in Stanford. Uh, he claims that at this level we can change the past. We are not in magic. If you drank coffee yesterday, you cannot undo that. But what you can do is change the fact that you drank coffee without milk into, no, you really drank coffee without uh, cream. You can change this virtual dimension. And my point is that uh, what Hegel calls, uh, sorry, what Freud calls the unconscious, forget about all these false biological metaphors, it's not instinctual. You drink coffee, 
the status of unconscious is that absential, it's that without. The unconscious notices its coffee without what? Without milk, without cream, and so on and so on. And my point is simply that I doubt, and my friends who work, maybe you can tell me more here, in this domain claim that, that probably I'm wrong, they are more careful, that uh, can the computer into which your thoughts will be immersed, can it detect this difference? Can it, you think about, I will have coffee. Can it detect the difference between coffee without milk and coffee without, uh, without cream? Uh, next point, so at some level, uh, now I'm really at five minutes, at some level, uh, 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 at some level, uh, singularity will be, of course, if it will happen, apocalyptic, in the original sense, like revealing the truth. But what kind of apocalypse will it be? The uh, Günther Anders, the German philosopher, who some of you may know was the first husband of Hannah Arendt, and I like this, like that. It's not only that women are known as, oh, she was the wife of that guy. Here we have a nice opposite example, no? He wrote a very good text, Apocalypse Without Kingdom, where he claims that, uh, that, uh, that uh, he was, of course, obsessed after World War II by the prospect of nuclear apocalypse. And for him, this was not apocalypse in the usual sen Christian sense, where it's a catastrophe and so on, but nonetheless, a new, higher dimension of truth emerges through it. It's just a catastrophe. He, Günther Anders, called is it apocalypse without kingdom. Now, what will it be for um, uh, uh, ent our entering singularity, for uh, for uh, Partisans of singularity, like Ray Kurzweil, it will be apocalypse with a kingdom. We are entering the new kingdom of materialized spirituality, reconciliation of spirit and matter, and so on and so on. For the pessimist, it's uh, an apocalypse without kingdom. Simply, as humans, we will no longer, we will no longer exist. Uh, I think that precisely if we take into account this virtual dimension of absentials, like the unconscious is this virtual domain of, it exists only as a virtual symbolic fact of what I am not, and so on. Here, this dimension, I guess, in my crazy optimism, will survive. And even, to conclude with a joke, and then one phrase, even some intelligent theologists are aware with it. Although I am very sympathetic towards Palestinians, but I nonetheless admire, don't underestimate the Jewish sense of religious catastrophic humor. Jokes. You know, Jews are wonderful here. They have a series of even, it's horrible in our politically correct times, of Auschwitz jokes, making fun of it. And by a Jewish friend, he told me, and it was not his own joke, he learned it from his grandmother who had tattoos, who was there in Auschwitz, 
okay, to understand this joke, you just have to know that uh, when theologists dealt with the problem of Auschwitz, how could God could have allowed such a horror to happen? One of the versions was God wasn't there. God died in Auschwitz. God couldn't have condoned it, and so on. God was not there. It's too horrible for God to endure it. That's the background. Okay, the joke goes like this. It's a trigger warning, as they say today. Uh, a couple of Jews who died at, at Auschwitz are there uh, in paradise now, sitting at a bench close to a river stream, enjoying free afternoon, and telling each other jokes about their death in Auschwitz. Like, one of them tells to the other, hey, Jacob, do you remember in what stupid way you died in Auschwitz? When they were dragging you towards guest chambers, you slipped on a piece of uh, soap, and you cracked your skull even before the guests affected you. <laughs> they laugh. Then God comes by and says, on a stroll, also on an afternoon stroll, and tells them, God himself, listen, guys, I don't get it. How can you laugh at this? It was so tragic, your death. One of the Jews goes to God, embraces him tenderly, and says, don't worry, our Lord. Of course, you cannot understand it because you were not there. <laughs> I love this joke because what God cannot understand is not suffering, but how you can make joke of it. That's the dimension of our freedom, the virtual dimension, and so on and so on. Now, really to conclude, because of... Now, I prove it to you. Look, look, look. I'm in the end. Yeah, yeah. Because of this, I claim that a certain dimension, which will... It's not simply that a subject will survive. No. In singularity, we will be deprived, I speculate here, of our wealth of inner life. If I think about something, sexual dreams, whatever, and they can be shared by the machine, by the others, of course, I'm in some sense deprived even of my inner life. But I remain as a pure subject, as a punctual Cartesian cogito, who, who is sustained by this, the unconscious other virtual Dimension. So my claim is this one. What will happen, it's an, a speculation which it will be possible to empirically verify it if something like singularity will happen. That I think that singularity will be neither this Ray Kurzweil style blissful immersion or in a, floating freely in a collective spiritual space, nor will it be this dehumanized uh, nightmare but it will be something much more interesting with great potentials for new forms of pain and horror, but nonetheless maybe offering a new hope, we will be radically divided more than now. Now we experience our division as the division between our inner life, I have all my dreams and so on, and reality out there, or even the reality of others, the opacity of others. What I think will occur there is that the, the gap, the most radical gap will be within me as a subject. I will, everything will be taken from me, even my dreams of which I am aware of, but I will not be that. 
I will maintain a minimal pure distance. And I think that here we shouldn't lose our nerves. This minimal distance will be at the same time maybe a resort of new creativity, of new freedom. Thanks very much for your patience. Thank you. Thank you. Where are we going there? Yeah, yeah. You still want me up there with the hope that I will fall down, sleep and fall Something down like or what? Yeah. Okay, thanks. No, I, it's okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Oh my God, okay, I'm really in an anxiety a little bit. Okay. Okay. Thank you now, very much. Now, he's my good friend, a better Stalinist than me. Because I tried did you, hard. Did you notice how he said, uh, pre-selected, well, how organized? Well, no, no, I'll explain. But no I'll free explain. debate, you know, like, but I know when I was young member of a communist party in Slovenia, we had these free youth communist meetings where the boss at the beginning, free debate distributed the questions. That well, that's why you you're giving it away you too much. You are following it here. Well, I, I, was going to, I was going to say that you were like my obstacle, paradoxically so, because on the one hand, I got my, the most pleasure from being able to tell you, no, get off the stage, get off the stage. So as yeah. long as you're there, but at the same time, as far as you're there, I don't have to come to the stage and speak. So that's what's fine. <laughs> that was, yes. Okay. So for the Q&A, we have, yes, this is our, our, our curated Q&A. So we have uh, students who will be answer, uh, asking Slavoj um, um, questions and uh, engage in dialogue. Our, our first question is from uh, Fatima Shire. Yes, I'm listening. I'm I'm, yes, please. I'm very sorry, but do people hear you? Could you come either come here or, my God, I'm ready to bring this to you. No, because I'm serious. Should I? Please, I shall enough. Oh, oh, I got there. Please, yes. Uh, okay. Hello. Yeah, uh, now it's okay, thanks. Yeah. Thank you for being here, Mr. Jack. So my first question is this. Uh, given your critique of post-humanism and its relationship... Sorry, of post-humanism? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and its relationship to capitalism. Uh, do you see your work as part of the humanistic tradition? And sorry, if so... From a humanistic tradition. No. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, please, finish your question. I'm very sorry. Please, uh, okay. Yes. Uh, is this it? I thought um, I interrupted you. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and if so, do you nevertheless have criticism of humanism and its legacies, particularly within the university? Mm. No, now I'm totally terrorized because I'm afraid to interrupt you. So, I'm done. That's the signal when you are at the end. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was the question. Uh, that's the, okay. okay. <laughs> Thanks. So, how, how do you see your work in light of the humanist tradition? Uh, maybe in the I'm distorted by my youthful experience, but the great news when I was young was this great wave of French thought. Uh, 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 Lacan, Althusser, anti-humanism, and so on and so on. So I think that, and I connect this with the legacy of German idealism, where also, you know what is so interesting? Till German idealism, the metaphor for 
human spirit was light. We live in a universe where all around there are threats, but we are the light of reason. And even if we are threatened from from within us, it's the dark side of us and so on, all those misleading Freudian metaphors, you know, that our ego is like a tip of the iceberg and all the unconscious beneath water. I think that uh, I follow here the line from medieval mystics to German idealism and so on, where on the contrary, the metaphor for the pure subject is, the mystical word is, you must know the term, night of the world, Mm -hmm. or as Hegel would have put it, it's the night, it's the radical darkness of self-destructive negativity. Mm -hmm. And this, I think cannot be captured with the term humanism. Humanism is, that's to go to a more general dimension and going back to sexuality. You know, uh, we of course codify sexuality through all uh, forms and uh, manners, rules, but what this codification, cultivation, tries to control is not nature. It's already some unnatural break from disruption of nature. Even in literature, we find this as, for example, think about the myth of Tristan and Isolde. It's this deadly, absolute passion. And Freudian name for this is death drive, which is very paradoxical. Again, Freud himself was confused here. Freudian death drive is not Oh, I want to die, I want to disappear. I claim that it can be shown in a precise way that Freud's death drive is paradoxically his name of, for immortality. What Freud means by death drive is basically the experience of being living, a living death. Something that persists beyond life and death. Something that is neither death than alive. And I think subjectivity modern Cartesian subjectivity, at its most basic, is this. It's, we live, insofar as we are human subject, in the days of the living death, not, and so on. So in this, uh, that's all I can do now, but it was a very precise question, thank you. These okay. are just some of the reasons why I don't inscribe myself into the humanist tradition. So if I could just press you for that, uh, on that for a second. So I think some of us here are curious to know more about how you position yourself in light of not characterizing yourself uh, in the humanist tradition, how you see yourself in light of the, the, the more recent popularity of, of, of post-humanist theory, new materialisms, um, object-oriented ontology. Oh, uh, no, uh, 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 this is a nice problem because uh, I am, of course, Although I appreciate some of them, they're not stupid, by far not, but uh, uh, I think that precisely, and that's my big, I had a couple of debates with the new star of disorientation, Graham Harman, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, They are, for me, way too, in some sense, even if they are against uh, this uh, centered on subjectivity, humanism. But nonetheless, I think this dimension that I was talking about, the dimension of this radical negativity, zero, potential destruction, death drive, 
disappears there. Their mm -hmm. world is the world of objects. Mm -hmm. So my, when I had the debate with Graham Harman, <coughs> and he claims subject is just one among objects, maybe more powerful, but nonetheless, and so on. I claim, no, subject is not this. And it's not that I think subject is an all-powerful entity, mega-object. No, subject is some almost nothing of anything, entity, pure appearance, and so on. But it's not, subject is not an object mm -hmm. like others. And this is why also the Freudian unconscious is not an objective determination of my mm -hmm. being. So, uh, but I've written a lot about it, uh, this uh, settling the accounts with, uh, with this uh, new, uh, new uh, uh, object-oriented ontology and so on and so on. Oh. You know, because, sorry, Justice, because I think that I'm here, I agree with them, with object-oriented ontologists, that we should somehow get over the standard Kantian transcendental horizon. But for me, what they do is simply a massive return to old, uh, to old realist ontology. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is way too arrogant. I'm not ready to do that step. Just want to press you just a little bit more on, in, in that regard before we get to the next question. Yes. But so even thinking not just with the, the new materialism as an object-oriented ontology, but even thinking um, the work in post-humanism, so thinking about um, the category of the human today in light of the, the historical understanding of those who are excluded from the position of humans. So not just human, post-human, but non-human. So I'm thinking in terms of something like the post-colonial, um, how to reclaim the category of the human in light of this type of historicity. Uh, now Even I, in the context of contemporary... Okay. Yeah. I will now... I always, when I'm reproached, uh, one way, I'm not saying you are at this level, but usually when I'm getting this question, the implication is, but isn't for European humanists, isn't their notion of humanity secretly Eurocentric and so on, no? So, uh, but, but this is my conflict with, among other things, with one with whom I have good relations personally, but not theoretically, Judith Butler. I think she's way too much a traditional liberal for me. Her reason is nonetheless, we should expand our scope to include others. Her worry is always, but what about those who are excluded and so on and so on. And, uh, uh, so, uh, and that's her problem with universalism, how to get a true universality which will not be exclusive. Okay, my brutal answer, I don't have time to develop it now, is that every universality is exclusive, and that's what's good about it, you know. And, uh, but, but another point is that's why I always here like to mention one of my authentic heroes, Malcolm X. You know for which universality I am? Not for this humanist all-inclusive, you know. Ah, I will give you, I think, a good example here, so that I don't get lost in another ten minutes. I might minutes. take you off. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now, you know what I uh, proposed him, the only way to control me? D did you see, it's an old classic, it's not even a very good movie. Did you see James Bond, Goldfinger? You remember that scene when Goldfinger has that car with the red button? You press the button and 
Maybe you need this That's when you direct uh, talk with me. No, uh, uh, you know, LGBT+, plus, I fully support them. The problems I have is when the movement makes, in part of its ideology, too much for what I considered identity political turn. Like, you know, so the very expression, LGBTQ or whatever, plus, it's crucial, I'm saying, saying this as a Hegelian now, no, to move with this plus from the empirical to the more speculative level. The empirical level is the way this plus is usually conceptualized. The idea is this one. We should avoid just, we should escape this binary logic. There are only two real sexes, masculine, feminine. We should admit that there is a plurality of uh, gender or sex, whatever, identities, and so on. And in the typical liberal way, they worry then. Oh, my God. We composed a list. You had list 35, 36, bigender, trigender, asexual, boots, whatever, and, and so on. But they worry, what if another guy comes and says, I don't recognize myself in any of those lists? So plus means and for or let's keep the space open for all the others. My Hegelian, you can imagine it's very simple solution is no, you can be directly a plus. Plus and plus the identity of human subjectivity at its most radical is that of a plus. You can exist as a plus, which means precisely at a distance from identity, doubting your identity, and in a further speculation, I don't have the time to go into it now, I would have said that uh, this is why, for Lacan, the basic form, or the basic form, shape of human subjectivity is feminine and hysterical. For a true Freudian, the term hysteria is something the highest you can say about a person. Lacan is clear here. He says, university discourse is established knowledge. Inventions happen at the level of hysteria. Hysteria is, for me, element, the most elementary form of the critique of ideology. Hysteria means, uh, what's the hysterical question? It is, you, figure of master, usually male master, you want to fixate me onto some identity. You are my wife, a whore, a mother, whatever. The hysterical question is, why am I what you are claiming that I am? This questioning the, the identity imposed by, uh, imposed by ideology. And this brings me back to uh, Malcolm X. That's how I think one should read his acts. It's not this longing for lost roots, or oh, let's go back to Africa and found our identity. No. I read him. He is, at least in his great moments, Malcolm X, is fully aware he is not a partisan of new creative black identity. No. He is in search of a new universality. He says in an ingenious way, that the fact that blacks were brutally deprived of their particular roots is at the same time the greatest chance of them. 
It's a space to create new universality, new freedom. His plan is not this typical liberal multiculturalist one. Yeah, we shouldn't oppress the blacks. They should also be... Uh, 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 they should also be allowed their particular identity. No, thanks. They should be allowed also to participate in our universality. Because, you know, that's the trick with multiculturalists. They like to, uh, white liberal multiculturalists, they like to humiliate themselves. It's a permanent uh, joke with them. You know, like, oh, we are guilty of everything. We white male, we, we are, uh, everything that happens in the third world. For example, I remember 25 years ago when the Rwanda genocide, all my left liberal friends said, yes, of course, we, it's a consequence of neocolonialism. And a black friend of mine from there, he's a genius. He, he exploded back. He said, how can you be so racist that you even allow us to be authentically evil. You really think that we are innocent children and only you can make us evil and so on. So uh, I think that uh, I believe in, I'm uni a universalist and I think this is a pseudo problem, you know, this multicultural liberal problem. How, uh, let's say you are, but you are not. You are a Chinese, I am a Latino American. When we talk, how do we know that we mean the same thing when we talk about art, state, and so on and so on? Uh, uh, the world market has solved this. It doesn't matter if we don't think in, in the same terms. Universality exists in the world market, an actual universality. When we make a deal, I mean, it doesn't matter what you think, what I think, it functions. Mm. Capitalism is enacted universality, but I'm getting close, sorry. Yeah. No, no, there's a few things that I'm going to press you on maybe afterwards, but I do want to get to our next question. So our next question uh, comes from Luc uh, Moulesson. There's Luc. Hi, um, so first off, I would like to thank you. Oh my Professor God, I can hear how you are behind your back sharpening your knife. <laughs> when you begin in this kind way, you know, as always, but please go on. Um, for your lecture today. Um, so my question is one that I think rather timely given the big debate tomorrow. Um, so it seems to me that the allure of figures like Jordan Peterson resides chiefly in their ability to occupy the void left by what you have termed uh, the demise of symbolic efficiency. <clears throat> that is the crisis at the level of collective meaning that characterizes post-modernity. They do so by providing a set of coordinates within which individuals can make sense of as well as act upon the realities. Do you believe that the left can learn anything from the successes of such figures? Uh, yes, it's, uh, of course, uh, Jordan Peterson is my opponent, but I, I will not say maybe anything original if I say this. But, you know, it's uh, the same as with Donald Trump. I'm deeply suspicious of this hatred, but at the same time fascination with Donald Trump. You know, all left liberals say, let's now forget about old hatred. We have a fascist enemy there. In some sense, it's true. But at the same time, my God, we should begin with self-criticism. How, what was wrong with our liberal consensus that it disintegrated and opened up the space for this new right-wing populism and so on and so on. Here, maybe, I have one respectful disagreement with uh, 
Jordan Peterson, insofar as he's a right winger, but uh, listen, he attacks something that he calls postmodern neo-Marxism. I don't see, I know what he empirically means, all this politically correct, fuller resentment, but the term is for me such an obvious nonsense. If you mean by postmodernism, uh, uh, this historicist relativism no longer taking all values seriously, just cynically playing with it, then Donald Trump is the ultimate postmodern president. It's an insult. I mean, compare as characters Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is an old-fashioned moralist and so on. Donald Trump is an, is an obscene postmodern abomination and so on and so on. <laughs> also, you know, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, in some sense, I appreciate his work. You know, he is at least, in contrast to many lazy leftists, Really, although I don't know how much he's really doing it, really uh, working with people as a clinician, this is not to make fun of. Uh, uh, so again, here I appreciate Jordan Peterson, but I wouldn't, but he says two things. First, he buys this into this topic of we need some transcendent values, higher costs. I would say, yes, but we live in a modern era where, first, you cannot, like, the definition of modernity with Kant and so on is that you cannot directly refer to some transcendent value system. We are responsible for it. We, you cannot say, I follow this because it's tradition. That's the definition of modernity. You have to reason. You have to ground it. Second problem I have with him. Uh, 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 when he emphasizes this moment that against the hedonist civilization and so on, uh, 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 we need myths, narratives, consistent stories. Yes, but to say this is not enough for me. Stories are ideology. And, uh, 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 okay, speaking about stories, just a brief point, Hitler was one of the greatest storytellers of the 20th century. He did, what did he do? Germany in the 20s, 1920s, total ideological confusion, people well at a loss, economic crisis, what they perceived as moral degradation, what's going on? Hitler provided a perfect, simple story. It's all the Jewish plot. And all of a sudden, ordinary Germans lived in a meaningful universe. Second problem for me with Peterson is, uh, is uh, you know, but that's, I will just hint at it, not to talk too much. It's uh, his admiration of Dostoevsky, you know, the line Dostoevsky Solzhenitsyn. <clears throat> How can he take seriously the total bullshit of Dostoevsky, which is, if there is no God, then everything is permitted. If today's experience shows anything, it's that the exact opposite is true. If there is a God for you in the fundamentalist way, so that you perceive yourself as the willing instrument, executor of God's will, then everything is permitted to you. I, uh, so, uh, again, I, just at this level, I would... I would, uh, I would uh, Complicate, I would complicate things. 
Uh, another dif difference with him is that I don't think that today the problem of our societies, even if you accept this conservative vision, moral values are disintegrating, we live in a hedonist society. No, we don't. We live in a society where all the inner tensions and of, of hedonist ethics of happiness exploded. The, the, the reason I don't totally trust political correctness is that uh, it often falls into the trap of resentment, which means that, you know, uh, the logic of resentment is, you know, a truly, I'll put it like this, we learned from already great German idealists from Freud and so on that Schelling puts it wonderfully, where he says that true evil is more spiritual than goodness. Goodness always has a certain openness towards naivety, nature, and so on. Uh, true evil is when destroying your opponent, hurting him, makes, uh, uh, means to you more than your own happiness. Evil is not egotism. Egotism is, I hate you, let's take it, <laughs> I hate you so much that I'm ready to suffer only if I know that you will suffer more. You know, we Slovenes identify as misers, and we have one beautiful anecdote. A divine, almighty person approaches a Slovene farmer and tells him, I will do to you whatever you want, but be careful, I will do twice the same to your neighbor. You know, the, the Slovene farmer answers immediately, fine, take one of my eyes. <laughs> so they, you know, and that, that, this is the form of evil. It's important to know, so again, hedonism is not evil. What we live today is the era where, again, this inner tension of hedonism. And this is why, for me as a Freudian, it's not difficult to explain all the paradoxes. Officially, we live in a permissive hedonist society. But then, at the same time, we live in a society where, okay, the motto is enjoy, realize your potentials, but then it's so hyper-regulated with all politically correct rules and so on and so on. So no wonder that the more our society is permissive, more there is impotence and frigidity and so on and so on. So you see, we just have to open ourselves to all these paradoxes and maybe, it's much more complex, my difference from Peterson is rather that uh, I think he appears to me, again, uh, a little bit too naive conservative. I think that not, it's not only that we cannot return to some old stable values. It's that if you do it, you become a postmodern clown. So my reproach to today's fundamentalists, it's not you are too fundamentalist, it's that if you look at the form, how they act, it's a big postmodern ego trip. They are not really what they claim to be. I'm not measuring them by my open democratic standards. I'm measuring them by their own performance, how they act. But maybe I should stop. I talk too much. Well, just on that note, but do you think that so given... You always yeah. have to say something. Well, I have to. That's... <laughs> I'm here to, re to, yeah, to react. No, but given the, 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 the openness of, of permissiveness uh, or the apparent openness yeah. of permissiveness and given the logic of the obstacle as the only possibility mm. for enjoyment, is there something about the return of a figure like, you know, very much a father type 
figure, you know, clearly oh, removed also a as big, the obstacle yeah, to yeah, permit yeah. The, that uh, kind of no, enjoyment. No, no, no. Uh, this is a very good point. I'm writing about it now. Because there is this tendency with some conservative Lacanians, not so much in United States as in France and so mm. on, where they say the disintegration of Oedipus complex was the big catastrophe. The only way to return to moral stability of our lives is bring back Oedipal authority and so on and so on. I don't think this can be done, and I'm writing about this now. Uh, my formula is, you know which one? The true, read it, please. It's for me the ultimate Greek tragedy. Forget about Antigone, Oedipus. Oedipus at Colonus. He is my hero. Hmm. He is like beyond Oedipus, you know. He has seen it all, and, uh, but he is not this, this is the big surprise. He, Oedipus at Colonus, after when he wanders around blind, he is not this figure of wisdom, resigned. He is like a spoiled child, extremely demanding and so on, full of revenge and so on. His problem is that he knows the prediction that the place where he will die is a, the city where he will die will succeed. He will bring great wealth, happiness, power to that city. So his whole point is how to hurt his own city, Thebes, how to, how in a spectacular way to sell his death. Mm. No, that's so beautiful. He, his point is precisely the Lacanian mind. I know, even if I'm blind and dying, I don't compromise my desire. I insist. He is the example of the one who has seen it all beyond all obstacles. And it's so typical how people mystify him. For example, uh, you know that wisdom, which is usually quoted as the wisdom of Oedipus of Colonus, that moaning, you know, like the greatest luck is not to have been born at all. It's not Oedipus who says this, it's the chorus. And Oedipus mocks it then, and so on. You know, incidentally, I proposed, they didn't like it, to a pro-abortion group in Slovenia to use this as the motto. You know, like, the greatest luck is not to be born, and we can help your child to achieve this goal or whatever. <laughs> Nobody liked it, neither conservatives nor... Uh, to amuse you, I had another, just allow me this obscene detour, dirty story. You know, we have also these anti-smoking campaigns. I proposed to a friend of mine who worked in Slovenia at the smoking, sorry, at the publicity agency. They were hired to do some stuff against smoking, you know. Okay, first, trigger warning, there is an obscenity, and then... Uh, 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 okay, it works only in our language, you don't use this term. You know, with us, smoking, like I'll smoke yours. It's also a gay and heterosexual term for fellatio. You know. So my idea was do a propaganda like instead of all those, you know, livers uh, with cancer and so on, put on the cigarette a picture of a guy or a lady passionately giving fellatio, and then in the publicity you have a doctor explaining, look, by smoking a cigarette you get just this cancerous stuff. 
by smoking a prick, you get all the vitamins and so on and so on and so on. <laughs> Nobody like this. Nobody like this. I, all right. I, I don't know in what way. I hate to kill is. a good time, but uh, <laughs> yeah. we have next question yeah. uh, from Quinn McNeil. Sorry. Uh, they're passing the microphone. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Good evening. Yeah. Um, so, as you said, in first is tragedy, then as farce. When capitalism experiences a crisis, today's radical left finds itself unable to take advantage. You've stated that the immediate effect of a crisis of confidence in the capitalist system and its leadership will not necessarily lead to emancipatory politics. When faced with a crisis, you say the capitalist system's default response is to employ a back-to-basics approach, and this strategy sees the ruling ideology and its leaders blame scapegoats for its crisis instead of assigning mm. the blame where it rightly belongs, on the shoulders of capitalists. You stated in the book this approach leads to racist populism, greater class division, and increasing poverty. You've also indicated that the basic insight of the radical left is that although crises are painful and dangerous, they are unavoidable and that they are the terrain on which battles have to be waged mm. and won. So my question is, if the radical left is ever to be truly effective, how does it go about creating the necessary discursive space to ensure its message has a chance of becoming an acceptable, sensible, and viable alternative to the capitalist system? It's a very precise question. I'm grateful for it, and I'm too old and tired to just be bluffing and admit it. I don't see a clear answer. That's why the left is today so moralist. Like, you know, many people who are now in the United States, and I support them, of course, democratic socialists and so on. And when I talk with them, I ask them, okay, what do you want? What do you really want? How to move outside capitalism? Is it uh, uh, nationalization, state takes over? Is it some kind of uh, communal regulation of economy, how it will be done? And I never get a, a, a clear answer. Usually they squeeze out by saying something like, oh, now we have to fight capitalism, we'll see later when we will come to that point or something. Or they, they cling to some vague local pre-non-representative democracy dream. You know, small communities, villages where people debate, decide everything. And here I explode. I think that, that uh, this is the description of a hell for me. Sorry, I wouldn't like to live in a small community where every afternoon I, will have, I would have to debate how we organize children kindergarten, how we distribute water. I think that our, the formula of the left should be a moderate, reasonable alienation. I want some efficient, anonymous machine which somehow, in a reasonable way, state machine, whatever you want, takes care of it so that I can enjoy my isolated life. <laughs> Even at the level of multiculturalism. I hate this liberal pressure. You know, we have to understand each other. Why? There are many people whom I'm not interested in understanding them and so on, you know. For example, I, I, and furthermore, how can we understand each other when we don't even understand ourselves and so on? I mean, it doesn't uh, work. I think that isn't a true 
overcoming of racism. Not this pressure, understand, understand each other, but rather tolerate opacity, discretion. Like, my ideal would have been to live in a big apartment block, a small apartment there where, perfect, one of my neighbors is uh, Native American, another black, a Chinese, uh, an Arab, whatever you want, and we politely ignore each other <laughs> in a very respectful way. Maybe miracles happen. I'm always open to them. With some of them, I become really friendly and so on. But uh, I'm deeply suspicious of this pressure of we have to understand each other, especially when this pressure is linked to another supreme stupidity, which means politically correct wisdom, which goes something on something like this. I quote it in one of my books, I think, Violence. Uh, an enemy is just somebody whose story you didn't hear. We are not ready. I know what's the humanist point. We fetishize the enemy. We are not ready to hear his side of the story. But this procedure clearly has a limit. Would you say that Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen to his story? No. The more you listen to his story, the more you see that he really is your enemy, and so on. We have to accept this painful fact, there are enemies. And so again, I'm here, uh, and uh, back to your question. Another point, the situation, if anything, today, I don't know how it is here with you. Trump talks a lot about it, but didn't do it a lot. The tragedy in Europe is that some populist right-wingers, where they are in power, even go so far as to enact measures that no social democracy dares to do today. In Poland, this uh, uh, justice and law, led by Kaczynski, the arch-conservative Catholic party, they are the ruling party. What they did a year ago, approximately, is they lowered the retirement age, they Enable, uh, they organized better, uh, uh, better, uh, better, how do you call it, foundations, stipends for students and so on, better health care and so on. Even in Italy, this disgusting populist right-wing coalition which rules now, they were the first big state which introduced some kind of, very modest, but some kind of basic income and so on. So this is the tragedy of the left, which you can see in the United States when Bernie Sanders is now, uh, is now <coughs> depicted as a crazy madman. Trump called him, I think, crazy Bernie crazy and Bernie. so on. But look at his concrete program, measured by the standards of Europe half a century ago. It's a very modest social democracy. What he is preaching as a radical measure was half a century ago, and this worked very well in Europe. This was the golden era of social democratic uh, welfare state. So I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, uh, I don't see an easy uh, uh, solution here. I really think that uh, the left today, that's the tragedy. The, on the one hand, we need something like, just to provoke people, I still call it communism, to, to confront economic crisis, to confront the threat of this digital control, to confront 
these uh, wild migrations and so on. We clearly need some kind of transnational regulation which is beyond the control of market forces and so on and so on. But uh, uh, how to do it? Any ideas and so on? We need it, but uh, there is no formula. You know, for me, the true tragedy of Venezuela. Yes, they screwed it up now, Maduro and so on. But I'm following there the situation for decades. Already under Chavez, he desperately experimented with all possible forms, giving a factory to the workers to run it, or not just nationalization. He played all possible games. It didn't work. I got this from my leftist friends who are doing something wonderful, very evil. When there were big news in the newspapers that factories giving to the workers to be run by them, he just noticed it and then a year later he went to that factory. <laughs> and the story in great majority of cases is, is, is a, a failure. Now, a liberal centrist would have told me, so what's the point? Drop your dreams, accept liberal capitalism as nonetheless Fukuyama position, the best that we have. I think this will not work. I'm more an apocalyptic catastrophist here. I think ecologically and so on, we are approaching a zero point. So to cut a long story short, I'm not a Marxist determinist. I don't think a new working class authentic proletariat will emerge as a subject, maybe. I'm pretty desperate. Maybe we are simply approaching a catastrophe. Okay, the the catastrophe for you is your time is done for that one. Oh, uh, that's the best news. We've got you know, the, oh, no, no, if you we got are last... my true friend, I love to play this dirty game. My true friends are ready to play like when I'm tired of you and don't want to debate. I like you to say your time is over, and then I can play a hypocritical game with you. I would love to talk with you for hours, but look, he's the bad guy. So. Okay, please. All right, last question, last question from uh, Conrad Vandenberg. Please. Uh, hi. Um, so actually, you were just talking about basic income briefly yeah. there, and my question kind of feeds right into that. Um, so over the past few years, I feel like people have been talking about automation in the economy a lot. Uh, and in the workplace, it seems like a lot of different industries yeah. are facing this problem. Uh, and politicians seem like they're talking about it now. Uh, recently, we're seeing campaigns in the states to um, fix the automation problem. Uh, with, automation, uh, like yes. robotization yeah. and so on. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, with a, a basic income as a solution to that, I'm wondering uh, if you think that those are viable solutions to that issue or if it, they miss something about the connection between the human subject and labor and uh, huh. technology, things like that? Uh, it's a very nice question, but a concrete question. And first, I have to admit that to give, I simply don't know enough to give you a precise answer. What just seems to me a strange fact, an elementary observation, is how in a, what I naively cling to as a rationally organized society, robotization, automatization should have been great news. Like, fine, we will work less and so on. While for us, it's usually perceived as horror. We will not have to enough work and so on and so on. So, uh, so uh, I don't think that, although in principle I support basic income, but I don't think it's the solution. 
Basic income is really, maybe it's a more intelligent, efficient version of capitalism, where the idea is this, that if you take care of those who don't work through basic income, you can have a much more pure and tougher competition and efficient capitalism for the rest. And uh, because even, how is he called? A Belgian guy called Paris, something like this, the father of the idea of basic income. That's his notion. I read a text by him where he says, no, I'm not anti-capitalist. My idea is just how to render capitalism more stable and even more efficient. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you asked a good question. Is this the solution or how and so on and so on? Uh, maybe I am an old idealist here, but it will sound horrible. But I still think, here I'm almost a leftist conservative in some sense, that to do some work is part of our personal dignity. It's the same as with the army. I'm deeply suspicious of the idea of abolishing military service. It sounds nice. But it really means professional armies will control us, and so on, and so on. I'm, I'm for, as long as we need it, universal military service. I am for this idea that, uh, okay, now that would be my very brutal. You will not like it. Nobody likes it solution. Yes, basic Jameson. income, but then you have to be at your disposal for some public work, whatever. Why should you get it for free? It's not great work, hard work, but you should do something, whatever, cleaning parks or whatever, I don't care. Why not? I mean, I, again, I claim I'm here an old European idealist. I claim doing something for you has also a great function of disciplining you and so on. Why not? I don't, I am not one of those people who claim Laziness is a virtue, and so on, and so on, or happiness is a virtue. No, the pursuit of happiness is one of the most stupid ideas that I can imagine. Because if you analyze closely the idea of happiness, it's something very self-contradictory, because if you do an elementary analysis, you discover when we dream about how we want something. We are secretly always aware, a little bit afraid, like, you know, the old joke, the worst nightmare is to really get what you dream about. It, so, uh, uh, happiness is, for me, this state of a compromise, where you want something, but you take good care of not really getting it. For example, an example of happiness, in England, in the last elections, I have some friends who supported Jeremy Corbyn. And when it was an electoral success for Labour Party, but not full success, they didn't form the government, they were relieved, you know. Oh my God, it would be in hell and so on. They were happy. We almost got there, but not quite, and so on and so on. In this sense, I don't believe in happiness. To provoke my friends in the Czech Republic, you know, the great, you are too young to remember it, but maybe you read about it. 68, 
the Communist Party leadership tried to open the situation, and then Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc countries intervened and stifled this Prague Spring. To provoke them, I said, they saved your dream. They saved the memory of Prague Spring. Why? Let's imagine that Soviet Union would not intervene. In that case, one of the two things would have happened, I claim. Either there was no genuine chance for a third-way authentic socialism there. Either they would have joined the West, or at a certain point they would have to regain control. Like, comrades, you had your fine enough. That's the limit. And they would have gotten something like we had in Yugoslavia, a little bit more liberal communism, but still, you know who is the boss. No? So what I'm saying is that precisely Soviet intervention sustained the dream, oh my God, without intervention we would have a really new democratic socialism and so on and so on. That's happiness for me. You know, happiness is a deeply conformist category in this sense. You don't really want to get it. It allows you to live. And I'm here more. Maybe sincerely, maybe I'm bluffing. Don't ask me, but at least I think I am. More, comprom more radically oriented here. Uh, that's the lesson of psychoanalysis of Jacques Lacan. Do not compromise your desire. If you desire something... Think about it, go to the end in it. Of course, you should reason very well, like what are the consequences and so on. But I'm always disgusted by this. Allow me to dream about it, but don't push me too far and so on and so on. And I wonder to what extent, even here, like so-called new, in, not here, but down there in the United States, so-called democratic socialists, uh, what do they really want? I mean, when there was the, the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, I spent hours talking with them, just with this stupid question, not Freud's question, what does a woman want, but what do you want? And apart from some vague, and, oh, it's horrible what the banks are doing, and so on and so on, they had, they had really no idea, uh, no idea, which is why in politics I'm always afraid of moralism. Not because I'm immoral, I hope not, but because moralism is for me always the politics of those who don't know what to do. It's an escape. Slavoj, I want to thank you for coming to speak. And, and I, I want am, to thank our, our student questions. I feel at home here. It's like in good old communist times, you know. A true democratic debate where you ask the guys, I wonder if you corrected and uh, approved the questions and so on. I feel at home here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'd like to invite Dr. Jane Barter, who is going to come up for some closing remarks. Mm. I joined the people, we stay here. Oh. <laughs> so I have the privilege right now of saying a few words of thanks on behalf of our president and vice chancellor, Dr. Annette Trimby who unfortunately could not be with us tonight as she's attending the funeral of Dr. Marsha Hayden, one of our former presidents in Victoria. 
And so there are many people who ought to be thanked tonight, uh, people who worked tirelessly to enable this wonderful event to take place. And, and I wish to thank a few of them. I'd like to thank the Axworthy Lecture Committee, um, especially its chair, Dr. Paul Lowry, and I'd also like to thank James Patterson for all of their work. Uh, to the University of Winnipeg Foundation staff and its donors who contribute so generously that we can have lectures of this caliber. I would like to thank events, especially Susan Iwanica. I would like to thank communications, Nanise Ibrahim, uh, physical plant and security at the University of Winnipeg, and diversity foods for keeping us nourished all day. Um, I would like to thank Dr. Matthew Flissfader. Uh, he's a Zizek scholar himself, and now his PR person and uh, super ego, I believe. And uh, thank you so much for the work that you've done to bring um, Professor Zizek here. Um, we know uh, how much you've done for this uh, event to take place, and, and we really appreciate your labor. And so finally, uh, Professor Zizek, for your own work. For several decades, you have goaded uh, us to challenge many of our commonplaces within contemporary capitalist society, and you have inspired countless young minds, some of those you've heard tonight. And uh, you've inspired us to think critically, and uh, as you have yourself inevitably put it, you have given us something of the courage of hopelessness. And tonight, of course, you did not disappoint. You have caused us to think about what it means to be a human in a so-called post-human age, and you have awakened us once again to the dangers of ideologies that so captivate us and inure us to the sufferings of this world. So we live here and we work here in a very special place, Treaty 1, a place where the resurgence of indigenous voices has also awakened us here, we hope, from our slumbers. And so on behalf of the University of Winnipeg, I would like to present you with a small token of our appreciation, which I hope will remind you of this place and of the gifts and talents of the First Peoples of this country. Uh, this, um, to give it away... Uh, is um, an Inuit sculpture which depicts uh, Sedna, the goddess of the sea. And so we hope you enjoy this. Thank you so much for being with us. Merci beaucoup, miigwech. Thanks very much. A brief critical remark on you. You forgot something. You forgot to bring your kind speech I am waiting for somebody who gives these thanks at the end to do it to what in Hegel scholarship we call self-relating. I expect you to thank yourself, you know, <laughs> for all that you do. I would like, not. I don't want to be the one who say, although I will now say thank you, wouldn't it be nice for you to say, and finally I want to thank myself. <laughs> I'm doing it for you, thank you. 